The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Heal. It was PMQs today. Isabel, can you give us the highlights? Well, it was rather formulaic in that Keir Starmer stuck to his theme of uh, listing through his six questions various things that were broken about Britain and how the Conservatives were at fault and didn't really land a particular blow on Rishi Sunak. He didn't put him on under pressure on any particular issue but his list uh, this week uh, was obviously on the escape from Wandsworth Prison of Daniel Khalif. Then he uh, also referenced concrete and small boats and also the allegations of a Chinese spy working in the House of Commons and whether this had been raised in the meetings that James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, had in Beijing when he travelled there recently, and why Britain's uh, position towards China hadn't changed or had at least remained confusing. So it wasn't particularly earth-shattering or indeed memorable uh, exchange between the two men. Uh, Rishi Sunak accused Keir Starmer of being principles-free, conviction-free type of leadership. He'll be flip-flopping from being a builder to a blocker, which was a reference to Labour's decision, which we'll discuss shortly, to vote against the government on its relaxation of the rules around nutrient neutrality in the planning System. I thought the uh, the more interesting questions actually came from SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn, who is very very good at Prime Minister's questions. Quite a contrast to his predecessor in Blackford, it has to be said. <laughs> He's very confident. He always speaks without notes. And today he asked about the triple lock and uh, made a reference to the Prime Minister's expensive swimming pool heating bill. Before asking yes or no, will the Prime Minister commit his party to maintaining the state pension triple lock beyond the next general election? And Sunak did not give the yes or no answer, which was to be expected. But it is obviously something that makes uh, the Prime Minister quite uncomfortable uh, around his backbenchers. I think also it's worth noting that after Stephen Flynn's question, there was a question from the Labour backbenchers about the same issue. And again, he didn't give it the kind of yes or no clear answer you might expect. And this obviously follows yesterday what was said by Mel Stride on The World at One and the briefing from Number 10's spokesman on this issue. And it's quite curious that they seem happy, the government seems happy to let this issue kind of run and run and play out. At the same time as you think maybe they want to be on the front foot over what Angela Rayner said at the TUC um, conference yesterday. Looking at today's mail, for instance, there's a great spread, I think it's pages six and seven on um, you know, back to the 70s, the workers' rights, etc. You know, all the greatest hits, Craig Hands in there, the mask has slipped, Labour hasn't changed, etc. Well, surely they would have wanted that on the front page of the Mail today, on the splash, rather than the story about the triple lock and will Rishi end that? It just seems interesting timing, you know, 12 months or so, we expect from an election, that, you know, rather than trying to make it, I think actually Labour, on most issues, is probably going to be less radical than it has been in previous years, but I think workers' rights is a really interesting issue, which is probably underexplored and underdeveloped. Something where number 10 perhaps wanted to go on the front foot on that, it just seems unusual and we, that we're talking instead of about uh, the triple lock and that's the kind of takeaway from today's session. When do you think there'll be a decision on the triple lock? It's been such a, a staple feature of British politics obviously coming up to almost a decade now. 
I think you've got both sides eyeing one another because it will be obviously much easier for Rishi Sunak to drop that as a manifesto commitment if Labour also drops it because then your angry pensioner voters don't really have anywhere to go. And I think that's partly what's going on at the moment. I think there's also a bit of a sense of sort of preparing the ground because while there have been Conservatives who've been warning about this for years, I mean, Liam Fox, for instance, has been talking about the unsustainability and unfairness of the triple lock for more than a decade. Actually, it it has obviously been totemic for the Conservative Party and something they boast about uh, a great deal at Prime Minister's questions and during election campaigns. So to change policy and drop it does require quite a bit of pitch rolling and that's not something that uh, successive number 10s have been very good at over the past few years so I think if I think if you have a a sort of delay and an evasiveness then then that at least builds the debate around it I thought it was just as Katie said on Coffee House yesterday really interesting that you have William Hague who is obviously known to be very close to Rishi Sunak advises him a lot is a great admirer of the Prime Minister uh, making the case to ditch it in the Times not necessarily as an outrider but possibly as part of that pitch rolling and I mean I thought interesting perhaps in slightly away from the policy issue Rishi Sunak's attack lines at PMK today talking about the national interest every time Keir Starmer he said every time Keir Starmer he has to do a decision he always makes it for the short-term political gain and I think that's because they want to play into this idea of him as a flip-flopper and perhaps Rishi Sunak as a man who's a statesman you know takes the decisions of the national interest whether of course that's actually going to work in an election of course remember the last time that someone tried to do a decision of the national interest was uh, you know probably Theresa May and the dementia tax uh, in 2017 and that backfired disastrously so I think while we can all admire perhaps the laudability of some of these initiatives whether they're going to actually survive contact in the general election at a time of course when the pensioners is the last great conservative vote winner remains to be seen and as well let's move on to that nutrient neutrality vote that's expected this afternoon i think at around 3 p.m labor to be voting against it and rishi sunak is making much being able to call Keir Starmer a blocker not a builder is there a tension in the labor position still yeah so the, i mean this is interesting and it's partly as a result of a change in personnel following Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet reshuffle. So Angela Rayner is now the shadow secretary of state for levelling up. She has taken the policy area in a very different direction already. Uh, She's declared it as uh, levelling up the concept as being a, a sham and a scam. Whereas Lisa Nandy, her predecessor, I think would not have used levelling up but was committed to the sort of concept and I think we were going to get a sort of labour flavoured um, levelling up had she been in post if the party went into government whereas I think Rain is going to have a much uh, a very different approach on this and on nutrient neutrality uh, it's really interesting because it was being used as a sign by the Labour Party that Rishi Sunak was just completely in hock to his backbenchers that he was only able to announce this reform that is you know allegedly going to pump even more sewage into the rivers which is apparently one of the conservative party's greatest hobbies but uh, now Starmer is using it as a device to embarrass Rishi Sunak which does make it seem quite difficult for the Labour leader to say we believe in building lots more homes that's certainly the way that the Conservatives are trying to pitch it but I think if we if you sort of take a step back and look at what the nutrient neutrality policy is which is essentially a relaxation of the rules uh, around the impact that new homes have on the watercourses in the area 
actually the reason they're being relaxed is it's much easier to do that than say change planning zones or have wider planning reform that might involve more homes being built uh, in sort of shire england Uh, this is generally to unblock developments that that are already some way into the if you think of the pun pipeline but are being held up by the nutrient neutrality rules and james can we move on to a story now in the times this is um the mi5 secretly warned the Tories, that two of its potential candidates to become MPs could have been spies for the Chinese state. They had links, the Times says, to the United Front Work Department. What did you find most interesting about this story? Does it show the ambition of the Chinese state in trying to infiltrate British politics? Well, I think, first of all, yeah, if we take it at face value, I think that it shows that for a long time, you know, British political institutions have been pretty lax on all of this. And the irony is, I think, of course, is the story that inspired this one was that the, the two of the MPs who were warning most about it, Alicia Kearns and Tom Tuganax, were the one targeted by this uh, alleged Chinese spy in Parliament. I mean, look, my first reaction upon seeing this, you know, you know, MI5 warned Conservatives that MP hopefuls could be spies was, you know, jolly good luck to them if they want to sort of face off against a room full of sort of septuagenarians and answer <laughs> questions about planning policy guidance and uh, what you're going to do to protect the local greenbelt. But yeah, I think it, it more seriously does show that 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 unlike as i say what's known in the cold war when we we knew what both sides stood and we kind of there was a much greater sense of we knew what the russian intentions were we had much more connections with moscow it, it was little about that in beijing and so a lot of these i think the relationship is slightly different between things like the united work front work department and and proper sort of chinese um, state security apparatus and so we're only still coming to terms with it i suspect that we're going to see more of these stories in the future rather than less i just want to try to work out how the Chinese spies would recruit such candidates. You know, how, how would you train up a fake Tory candidate? Would it be that you'd have to have this backstory involving a slightly poorly adjusted personal life? Uh, would you, you know, what, what sort of clothes would you ask them to wear? What degree? I think actually in a way it would be quite easy to, to create a kind of uh, a fake conservative stereotypical candidate. Is- stereotypical conservative candidate. You know, probably slightly drunk maybe um <laughs> conserv- yeah answers on a postcard please yeah, coffee house please listeners. do write in uh yeah conservative friends of everything you know these days i think they now got two for instance two conservative friends of the caribbean so i mean all these sort of groups you know, we need to, we need to do a sort of a bluffer's guide to becoming a tory uh, mp we could get our former colleague seb Payne back on actually <laughs> or boris johnson as well he's in this week's magazine <laughs> you know what's he up to now and can we just finish on the story about the defense committee um it looks like they're trying to oust tobias elwood as the chair of the committee, what's going on there, guys? Well, the big debate in Parliament right now is whether, under the rules, standing orders, they're going to be able to get enough Tories, along with the Labour members of the Defence Select Committee, to um, vote to remove him as chairman. Now, 2010, uh, the new coalition government came in, a whole new breath of reform, etc., breath of fresh air, and they introduced elected uh, Select Committee chairs, and before that it was whips appointments. So we've had 13 years since, and we have not had a situation where an elected Select Committee chairman has been uh, removed. This could be well be the first time. So it all depends on the uh, four Conservatives, other than Tobias Elwood, on that committee and what they're going to vote and do. And we believe we should have a decision in the next 24 hours or so. And so I think it's quite important to remember why this happened was because Tobias Elwood's f- comments on the Taliban and Afghanistan were seen as the, the straw that broke the camel's back on all this. Um, I just think it's interesting whether this sets a kind of precedent, uh, particularly as so we mentioned uh, Alicia Kearns uh, a few minutes ago, whether you know there will be any kind of pressure on her but this Chinese spy story, as I say, I think that it's we, we should reflect the fact that, you know, 
China goes out of the way to sort of target people who are deliberately hostile to the regime to discredit them. But I think it's an interesting, perhaps, test case to see what happens to Tobias Elwood. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you very much for listening.